Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 333. Today's episode is all about the multiverse and alternate timelines, a quantum perspective shift to unlock infinite possibilities. And all of these uh, create what Yuval Harari in Sapiens calls imagined realities, things that are only real because we believe them to be real. So for instance, the United States government, if we all believe in it, right, it's real. And if one person left, it would still hold, right? It's an intersubjective reality. But just because we all believe in it doesn't make it real in order to see whether something is truly real, it has to pass what Nassim Taleb calls the Lindy test, which is the test of time. And so when we attach to these ideas, when we attach to this imagined realities, you're bound to suffer because you're attaching to something that's impermanent or uncountable. And so by understanding the imagined reality nature, you're able to focus your time and energy on things that are real. For instance, your health, your relationships with other people, shifting your attention from the imagined realities to the Objective realities tends to lead to a happier existence. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Have you ever considered the existence of multiple realities? And if you have, what would this look like? What if there's a different version of you for every single possibility, every unique perspective? It's like when you shift your beliefs, you're actually shifting into a whole new reality. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and maybe some people find the idea a little silly, but to me, it's incredibly empowering. To me, this possibility makes the magic of the universe palpable. And the deeper I dive into this belief, the more I see my reality transforming. It's like I'm conducting an experiment with my own thoughts and the results are real. I'm proving it to myself one thought at a time. I look at my life just three years ago compared to now. We had no kids, no sense of real wealth. We had quite a bit of debt. We felt powerless at the mercy of the changing world around us. And fast forward to now, our life is bursting with love from this beautiful little family. We're surrounded by nature. We own multiple properties. We've found our power and it stays with us no matter what the world throws at us. And guess what sparked this transformation? Our beliefs. It sounds like a paradox, but our beliefs had to shift first. And here's the good news. Every bit of evidence that stacks up makes those once fake beliefs you know, the whole fake it till you make it mantra, stronger and more real. And then you reach a point where you just can't help but believe. 
This last year, the transformations in my life have been crazy huge. I've been sharing this journey on Instagram. So if you're not already following me, you should definitely check out Mind Love Melissa. Oh, and heads up, I faced a bit of shadow banning for not towing the line with certain narratives the last couple of years. So I would really appreciate it if you could just swing by, like some posts and shake up that algorithm. Well, on to something huge that I've realized. The scale of your transformation is directly tied to the size of your dream. It's simple. If you're not dreaming big, your mind needs a little bit of stretching. Our beliefs are both our limits and our wings. But remember, it all starts with those beliefs. So what if this year we just blew the lid off of our conventional ideas of what is and what could be? What if we embrace the idea that life is an endless playground for creation and expression? Well, this episode is the perfect jumping off point. We're diving into real tangible evidence of a universe that operates in a way that most people can't even fathom. And who knows, in the process of breaking and expanding these beliefs, maybe you'll unlock some incredibly empowering truths about yourself and the endless possibilities that await you. Our guest is Clément Descroix. He's an author, master inventor, Zen architect, and space-time revolutionist. He has a mechanical engineering degree and over 130 patent disclosures. His groundbreaking book, The Idea Space, gives consciousness a real scientific foundation. He actually simplifies Einstein's field equation, guiding readers to understand their thoughts and their life's purpose. So three key things we will learn are the universe's most intriguing illusions, the mind enigma, how to break free from the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, and the mind-bending theory of the multiverse and infinite timelines. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Clement Descrop to the show. Thanks for having me, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be here. So what inspired your concept of the idea space? Fantastic question. So about four years ago now, give or take, um, I was just a little bit tired of the nine to five lifestyle, like most people are, I can imagine. Uh, and I wanted to do something that was different, that would make me money while I slept, which is something Naval Ravikant, who is the founder of Angelus, talks about a lot. And so I could code. But I wasn't the best coder and I read a lot. So I was like, you know what, why not write a book? And so I'm a bit of a nerd and I like to read textbooks for fun in the morning. So anything from like math, physics, uh, semiconductors and rockets. And 
So I was very passionate about physics at the time uh, and meditation and mindfulness. And so I just read a lot about those two domains. And over time, I realized for how good today's physics is, uh, it hadn't really described a uh, sustainable model for consciousness or for the mind. And so that was kind of the inspiration of what if we took the basics of mathematics and applied them to thoughts and emotions and uh, sensations and just started writing. And yeah, the concept that the, the words idea space just kind of came to my mind serendipitously. And then the whole book kind of just divulged from there. In your book, you describe the mind as an enigma that often leads us away from the present moment. Why do you think that is? That is a great question. I think it's more uh, so like an evolutionary thing where we have to think about the past or the future to survive, right? Charles Darwin, whole theory of survival of the fittest. He says kind of the vigorous, the happy and the healthy survive and multiply. Uh, and so in order to survive and multiply, we have to make sure that things we've done in the past don't make, doesn't influence our actions in the present or get us killed <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Uh, and same thing with the future, right? We want to make sure that we're able to survive in the future. And over time, with all the social constructs that have evolved with humans, um, our sort of survival of the fittest has evolved with it too. And so we tend to think about the past or think about the future. And Joseph Goldstein, who is a meditation guru, uh, loves to say, uh, you, you experience the past as a thought in the present and you experience the future as a thought in the present. And so I think we just kind of get caught up in that monkey mind then and think about other things instead of the present to kind of protect ourselves. It's funny because I'm 38 right now. And I was just saying to my husband, I find it wild because I do a lot of work on my mind. I'm, I meditate a lot. I'm always being introspective, trying to figure out the roots of things. And yet I still feel as though I'm as I age, I'm having a harder time letting go of things. <laughs> I'm like, am I not mitigating all this stuff? Just today, I was like, I, I really think I'm having a harder time letting go of things. I'm, <laughs> I don't know if I have to meditate 10 times a day or what. And he's like, my husband just gives me this little pep talk. And he's like, just remember the things that we know. You are living in the past right now if you're holding on to this thing or if you're thinking you should have said this. And I'm like, I know all of that conceptually. Why is it so difficult to remember and apply? <laughs> yeah, that's the million dollar question right there. And I think it's difficult because a lot of times it's so new. Um, like I was listening to some of your previous podcasts and you recently moved right to a new place and that presents so many challenges in its own right. And even if you move like 10, 20 times before that, it's still weird to move to someplace new and experience something different. And so even if it seems like you've done it before, uh, it's just so different. And then your mind just wants to think of all the different potential avenues that could go wrong. And if the, the key is to catch it as like early on as possible, right? Because a lot of times uh, if you don't catch, so your thought will trigger an emotion and then your emotion will sort of like tint your idea space. And your idea space is just a mental model for your mind. And Think of it like uh, if you, someone cuts you off in traffic, your idea turns idea space turns red. And throughout the day, it'll stay red and get less and less red. And if you don't catch that initial thought that triggered the emotion, then your idea space will maintain and stay red. But if you're able to kind of iteratively backtrack to the thought that triggered that first emotion that that caused like that emotion in your body somewhere, then you're able to kind of take a step back and say, okay, 
you know what, uh, maybe this isn't as big of a deal I thought as it was, um, but it's still hard. Uh, it's not easy just because like you said earlier, we get attached to it. Uh, and even as we get older, it is harder and harder to let go. And one of one of my professors back in the day was like, growing up is the constant act of letting go. Uh, and that, that resonated with me a lot. And I think the more we let go, the more we're able to detach from the the actions and the scenarios that causes frustration. It's so counterintuitive because it's like the longer you live, the more you accumulate, whether it's stuff, thoughts, experiences, relationships. And so understanding that that sort of spiritual, psychological growth is letting it all go reminds me of what keeps coming up around the idea of ego and enlightenment. I love listening to like Ram Dass and Alan Watts. And I, he said something where it's like, the, it's the, he had heard it from a guru where it's like that, that's the kind of crux of the enlightenment challenge is like, in order to reach it, you have to let go of the ego, but the ego is the one who wants it the most. <laughs> so you're just like yeah. chasing it. Yeah. That's, uh, I love both of those people as well. Uh, Ramdas, I feel like every time I saw him, he had a smile on his face. I'm like, how do you do it? That's awesome. <laughs> And then Alan Watts, of course, is uh, a legend. And I think the my kind of meditation background is inspired a lot from kind of Buddhism and Zen specifically. And one of the main sort of principles that they say is nothing whatsoever should be clung onto as mine. Uh, and I think that's so important, just going back to the attachment. It's just whenever you attach to something as mine or it's, it's for me, you're going to suffer because it's bound to change, right? Uh, something I talk about in the book is that the world is uncountable or it's impermanent. It's in a constant state of flux. And so when you attach to something that's bound to change, if you're just going to get hurt when it changes, just because it's going to be different, right? And so, for example, if you want a certain job title or a certain way of life, like if you have kids and you're like, oh, I'm, you know what? I want my kids to be this age forever for the rest of my life. And then you blink and next thing you know, they're like five years older. Like, what just happened? Um, and if you constantly want to kind of attach to the way that the world was or the way the world is, um, you're constantly going to get hurt. But if you just kind of just take it day for day and take it for what it is, then you're able to kind of appreciate those moments when they arise and kind of just live a more purposeful and happy life. Yeah, I love the the idea that all suffering comes from either clinging or resisting. My husband and I were just reading a book. A Happy Pocket Full of Money, which is an amazing book. I, it sounds like it's going to be cheesy by the title, but it's deep and it's awesome. But one of the quotes was, what are possessions but things you're keeping in guard, keeping guard in fear that you may need them tomorrow? And it's funny because I love stuff. I'm a Taurus. Like I, like, I love presents. Presents might even be my love language, which I'm realizing could be a character flaw the more I think about it. But yeah, I'm I'm really working on not liking my stuff as much, <laughs> but I love it all, especially the cozy is, stuff. Is there a reason? Is there a reason you feel like you get attached to the stuff so much or like uh the presence? Oh, this is a deep question. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. 
But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. Is there a reason you feel like you get attached to the stuff so much or like uh, the presence? <sighs> this is a deep question. I know I'm addicted to the dopamine hits of Amazon packages, number one. But I I could go back to like a number of threads through my life, being an only child, like kind of always feeling on the outside. So it's like my stuff, my room was my safe haven, like going to visit my dad when my parents were divorced when I was really young and just like having my want my things. And they were the only things that really made me feel safe. I know for those who follow astrology, Tauruses just have the whole material world, like the Madonna material girl song might be made for me. <laughs> but it's, I don't know. I don't like the same things other people. I could care less about designer stuff. I'm more like, Ooh, 100% wool or <laughs> organic linen. <laughs> That's a high frequency fabric. You know? <laughs> so it's different than other people. But yeah, I could probably get back to like 12 different roots of my being. <laughs> I'm honestly the same way. Like for me, it's books. Whenever I get a, a book, I'm like a sucker for hard copy physical books. Whenever I put one in my bookshelf, I get all like giddy. I'm like, Ooh. 
ooh, another book, even if I won't read it. It's just, I look at it, it looks very pretty. I'm like, oh, you know what? This was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my bookshelf's all color-coded. It's gorgeous. Although I love my Kindle Scribe. It is a game changer in the book experience because you can actually like write. It's not necessarily in the margins, but like you highlight something, it pops up as a note and you can write and it feels so good. And then you can export all of your notes. And so then you like have them in paper copy. It's the best of both worlds. This is not a Kindle ad, everybody. But (laughs) (laughs) back to the the idea space, because you introduced the concept of the idea space as a scientific approach to understanding consciousness. How does the idea space concept differ from traditional views of consciousness. Yeah. So I think a lot of traditional views of consciousness relies on the neurobiological, like biology aspect where you have neurons, neurons are firing. Uh, and then the billions of neurons in your brain create some sorts of imagery, which eventually relates to your whole entire body. And then that's kind of how consciousness arises. Um, and I think that approach works. It makes sense. And the thing about consciousness is that it's no, there's no right answer. It's such a non-trivial topic, right? Um, and it's because it's like, what has consciousness and what doesn't, right? Like, does a cell, does anything that's alive have consciousness? For instance, a cell that's alive, like, does that have a conscious, its own consciousness? It's tricky. And so with the idea space, it takes a step back from that and looks at it more from the physics standpoint. And it doesn't, describe the hard problem of consciousness of kind of how does consciousness arise but it just describes the mind in a way that's congruent with modern physics and so to dive into that a little bit more so your idea space consists of your thoughts emotions sensations and perceptions your thoughts are just uh, mental images words and songs emotions are anything from pleasant and unpleasant and everything in between your sensations are your classical five of touch sight sound hearing and tasting. And then your perception is your ability to recognize something. For instance, I know this is a water bottle. (laughs) I can see the water bottle. I'm pretty sure it's a water bottle. And so those are your elements of your idea space. And your idea space has zero measure. So what that means is that it looks like nothing to everybody else. So for example, Melissa, hold something in your hand. Like for instance, I'm holding my AirPod case, you can hold your phone. And if you're listening, just let's grab something. Clearly you can see it. You can feel it, right? And everybody else can see it. But now close your eyes. And picture what you're holding in your hand in your head. Can you see a mental image of what you're holding in your hand in your head? But mm-hmm. now, can anybody else see the mental image in your head? No. Exactly. So your idea space, all your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and perceptions has zero measure. And because it has zero measure, it looks like nothing to everybody else. Um, and that's kind of like the basis for the idea space. And from there, it, the book just kind of keeps going on to other properties of your idea space such as it's impermanent or uncountable, it's always changing. And then how it relates to the universe at large, right? Where your idea space sits at the center of your own observable universe. My best friend and I just had another one of our epic three-hour phone conversations. And we were sharing notes because we were both just kind of going through different things. And she sent me a text right at the right time when I was creating this whole story, probably tied to worthiness and (laughs) something that else happened and creating the story that was just bringing me down. And then she sent a text right then that was like everything I needed to hear, you know, and, and then she ends up calling me and we were talking and she was recounting. Basically she got in a feud with a friend and, and they hadn't spoken for a couple of weeks and they finally decided to go have a conversation. And she said it was difficult, but necessary, but 
And I was like, why was it so difficult? And she's like, well, the first like whole hour I'm hearing why she thought we weren't talking. And I was just like, this is so far from anything that I thought was going on. It's like, it just goes to show you how we are all having our own experience. And so most of the, the conversation was just like kind of pruning through these stories that we created in our head. And I've thought about this a lot and a lot, like in a lot of different concept contexts, for example, I don't know if this is the most PC example, but like, well, with schizophrenia, they have their whole world going on. They think it's real. Do I think it's real? Can they ever meet somebody else with schizophrenia that somehow aligns with their world? Or is it just all on their own the whole time? Like, you know, that just these questions that I may never have the answers to, but it goes to show so often, like the first two thirds of my life, I really identified with that I was seeking truth. And something kind of turned that idea on its head. And I think I'm still recovering from it like half a decade later in realizing (laughs) that I don't know if I could ever find that. Like it's finding my truth. And so finding what's true to me, how to live within my vision, how to be okay if other people's visions don't align with mine, whether that's a vision for the world, a vision for themselves, a vision for me. And while this turned my whole way of being upside down, it was also so freeing, you know, because when I am on the quest to find truth, it also becomes very pertinent that I need to convince other people of that too, because why would I want them living in an illusion? But to realize that we are literally all confined to our own illusions and we may or may not ever escape them is just a weight off my shoulders. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. And I think what you said, you just hit the nail on the head where I feel like everybody lives their own truth. And what would be true to one person may not necessarily necessarily be true for the other person. Uh, And the schizophrenia thing, uh, first thing that came to mind was with AI. Like, uh, I don't know if you've seen with ChatGPT, you can do, there's this, and within ChatGPT, there's this uh, library called... um, I forget the parrot is an emo. It's the mascots are parrot, but apparently you can add a setting. It's called verbose, and when you do verbose, you can kind of see what ChatGPT is thinking. And so inside of it, it tells you like, oh, I need to get this answer, so I'm going to think this, and then it just kind of gives you step by step what it's thinking. And that gave me the idea of like the hallucinations they talk about with AI, where they'll hallucinate something. Right? It's similar to like the schizophrenic people where they think something is real in the world, but it's like, hey, no, you have schizophrenia, but it's like you know what, that's true in their world is like, does that the same thing hold with like AI and do AIs have their own form of idea spaces in, in a sense? So that's kind of where my mind jumped in from that. Oh, that's a good point because there are times where I am deep into a thread and I'm like, you've lost your way, chat. <laughs> like, I'm going to just start a new thread. Let's start fresh. I've even tried, can we start fresh and forget this entire conversation? No, they're still like on this weird loop. Like something got stuck. I can't get it out. <laughs> so I've got to go to a whole new thing. And if only we could do that, it would be like um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or whatever that movie is. With <laughs> Jim yeah, great movie. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic. What are, what are your thoughts on uh, kind of, whether computers will eventually have like idea spaces or consciousness or in, in their own right. And maybe not computers, but like other animals like dogs or cats, like 
in your mind, where does it start and where does it end? I think things start and end in different places in this material world that we are able to tune into than it does in the grand scheme of what actually exists. So we have are able to pick up on this small blip of what we see as the material world, a small spectrum of the spectrum of light that actually exists, of the spectrum of sound that actually exists. And so I have interviewed so many different people with different understandings of the grand nature of the universe of consciousness. One person I interviewed said that animals will, in a next life, they can become human. We never regress, but we can move forward. And so we can, or we can move higher up in the spectrum of consciousness. And so animals can become human. And it's often when they save a life or they do something in their dog or cat lives, whatever animal they are, to show that they've got like a, a deeper understanding. So I am holding on to the idea that Maverick Danger, my little dog of 15 years, is <laughs> reincarnating to be like maybe one of my children. I don't know. You can't really say that out loud to people. They think you're weird, but <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> he's that's an totally epic little being. But like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Will we ever perceive? I, I'm sure we'll perceive more. We've always been evolving. As far as the computer side, I'm really hoping that the smart people with the controls are protecting us and it's not going to be like a Terminator situation or they're not going to be like humanity is destroying itself. Let's destroy them first type <laughs> decision. Yeah. But um, I also believe the more I understand about quantum physics, the multi-worlds theory, the more I wonder if the Truman Show was more like a documentary <laughs> where like we are all in these universes and the sun's always shining directly above us. And so if I allow myself to go doom and gloom with AI taking over, I'm probably just going to pull that reality right into mine. But if I'm like, <laughs> no, uh, you know, my mind's going somewhere dark. Let me sit in a very light visualization. <laughs> then I'm hoping that I'm going to steer the possibilities <laughs> towards the ones that I want. Yeah. And I think with like the multiverse theories, they're super interesting, especially just from the quantum sense. And from me, it's my perspective is this idea that, like, again, everyone lives at the center of their own observable universe. So it's like, what does that mean? It's like everything you see is in the past, right? Because it takes time for light to go from point A to point B because light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So you're seeing the sun how it was eight minutes ago, right? And because it took eight light minutes for the sun to reach you. So this, if the sun exploded right now, you wouldn't know about it for eight minutes just because it would take eight minutes for that light to travel here. And so you can keep extrapolating that idea back where it took 20,000 light years for light from the center of the galaxy to reach you. And so you're seeing the center of the galaxy, how it was 20,000 light years ago. And you just keep extrapolating that back and back and back. And then you get this idea of, okay, well, what's the farthest back I can see if everything I can see, if everything I see is in the past, what's the farthest that I can see? And if everything you see is in the past, then the farthest you can see is the beginning of time itself, right? Um, which is like the hypothetical big bang uh, and so that's kind of what the James Webb telescope is up looking right now. It's looking at some of the earliest stars by just being able to look at some of the, the light that took the longest time to reach us. And so you get this interesting idea where everybody's at the center of their own observable universe, which is like a giant sphere centered on you and kind of like your observable universe is slightly different than my observable universe. And a good short story that kind of encapsulates this is something I call the sunset conjecture. So like picture yourself on the beach. 
It's nighttime. The sun is setting. You got a pina colada in your hand. The sun's golden rays are flashing right off the water towards you. And you look to your friend and you say, man, the, the sun's golden rays are shining the water right towards me. Isn't that beautiful? And then your friend looks at you and goes, no, you idiot. The sun's golden rays are shining right off the water towards me. And so you're kind of both right in that sense, right? Because you're both at the center of your own observable universe. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before around everybody having their own truth. Everybody has their own perspective of the universe from a butterfly that's like five meters away to the sun, to the center of the galaxy, to the edge of your observable universe, which is the Big Bang. And so just like the sun's light rays are hitting you uniquely on the sunset, the Big Bang, which kind of creates the universe, right? Everybody thinks the Big Bang happened. It did happen. But since everything you see is in the past, it's still kind of technically happening. Those effects of the Big Bang are hitting you uniquely. Just picture like two giant spheres overlap on top of each other where like a little bit on the right side is hitting me and then a little bit on the left side is hitting you. And so you just get this idea that everybody's universe is super unique to them, uh, which kind of goes into the multiverse idea of just like, okay, everyone's got their own life going on. So that personal universe sort of seems like my individual idea space, but you also touch on macro idea spaces. What do those entail? Yeah. So your personal idea space is the idea space you're living in right now. All your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and perceptions. And then your macro idea space is when two idea spaces combine. So for instance, right now, we're having a conversation. And so our idea spaces are combining in a way. You can also have macro idea spaces when you read, when you take part in social life, right? And so there's different hierarchies to the macro idea space where talking to someone else is the lowest level, then you have social norms, then you have laws, and then you have governments, corporations, religions, so on and so forth, scientific theories. And all of these uh, create what Yuval Harari in Sapiens calls imagined realities, things that are only real because we believe them to be real. So for instance, the United States government, if we all believe in it, right, it's real. And if one person left, it would still hold, right? It's an intersubjective reality. But just because we all believe in it doesn't make it real in order to see whether something is truly real, it has to pass what Nassim Taleb calls the Lindy test, which is the test of time. So the United States government didn't exist at one point. Now it exists. And then in some future point, it will cease to exist. The same thing as Rome, right? Um, and so you get this idea that a lot of the beliefs that we attach to, whether it's money, words, corporations, um, scientific theories, they're only real because we believe them to be real. Uh, and that doesn't mean they're not helpful. For instance, we're talking right now, we wouldn't be able to communicate without the words that we use. But that doesn't mean that English, which at one point didn't exist, now it exists and in the future will not exist. It will be like the main form of communication throughout time. And so the whole point of the macro, macro idea space is that it holds the same properties as your personal idea space. So it looks like nothing to everybody else, right? I can't see the United States of government. I can't see the English language. Uh, and it's uncountable and it's always changing to create new languages, new forms of government. And so when we attach to these ideas, when we attach to this imagined realities, like, for example, I want this job title and I will only be happy if I get that job title. You're bound to suffer because you're attaching to something that's impermanent or uncountable. And so one of the main goals with the book is to awaken, right, to show you what reality is, not where a lot of people think that everything that I just described, those things are real. Like money is real, language is real and things of that nature. And so by understanding the imagined reality nature of those items, you're able to focus your time and energy on things that are real. For instance, your health, your relationships with other people. And 
I think shifting your attention from the imagined realities to the objective realities uh, tends to lead to a happier existence. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I can definitely see that because even as you were going up the tiers of these imagined realities, you were like social norms, then government, then something else. And I was just like, oh, oh, <laughs> like it was all the things that I have like negative feelings about. I'm like, oh, yeah, social norms, that cage that keeps me <laughs> confined. And then, oh, government, all that corruption. <laughs> like, and I was just like, oh, all those imagined. And then you got to scientific something. I was like, eh, that one's more neutral for me. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, maybe I should stay in my own idea space. <laughs> I create the ideas here. I plant the flowers. <laughs> I'm not covering everything in cement. But you <laughs> talk about these like veils of illusion. What are some common veils of illusion, of veils of illusion that people encounter? And how do we begin to first recognize that we even have a veil of illusion and then start to lift them? Yeah, a fantastic question. So uh, a veil of illusion is when unknown unknown enters your idea space. So break that down a little bit. So there's four types of ideas. You have known knowns, which are things that you know to be true. For instance, an apple is red. Some of them can be green, but most apples are red. Uh, then you have known unknown, which is something that it's kind of like a variable. You kind of know it exists, but you don't know its value. For instance, there's a gravitational acceleration on Earth, which is why when you jump out of a plane, you slowly accelerate towards Earth, and that's called G. And someone super smart figured it out, and it was 9.81 meters per second squared. And then you have unknown knowns, which are things that only you know. So, for example, what color underwear you're wearing. That's something that hopefully only you know and no one else knows. <laughs> and the last one are unknowns, which are things that you don't know, that you don't even know you don't know. And this is a little trickier, but an example of this is... Did gravity exist before Isaac Newton introduced gravity? 
And at first you might think yes, but when you think about it a little bit more, it's like, okay, so let's say that you're living in the year 1680 and you count all of the ideas that exist and you get an infinite amount. A gravity is nowhere in there as an idea. But then in 1687, Isaac Newton drops uh, Philosophia Mathematica and introduces the idea of gravity. And so you get this idea where gravity is a scientific theory. It was an unknown unknown. It didn't exist in your idea space before, and now it exists as an idea. And same thing with the idea space. Like before you heard the term idea space, you didn't even think twice about it. But now that you've heard the term, you have a general sense of what it is and some of its properties. And so lifting a veil of illusion is when an unknown unknown enters your idea space. And these are really powerful because they allow you to see what the world isn't, which is, again, the key to awakening. We all have these biases when we look at life and certain perceptions and beliefs of how the world should be and how the world is. And when we lift a veil of illusion, we're able to break down one of our biases. And for example, a lot of people think that the world, in the world, things are true or things are false. But in reality, things can be simultaneously true and false. And there's a mathematical concept that really just hits on this called clopin, which is a creative way of describing something that is simultaneously open and closed at the same time. And they just smush the two words together and you get clopin. And so understanding that something can be simultaneously true and false is very enlightening uh, because it hits on non-duality, which is important in most meditation practices. And Alan Watts has a good quote, which I might butcher. So sorry, the ghost of Alan Watts. Um, but uh, it's like, it's like a box without a box. I can't do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna fail it. But if you're if you got access to the internet, definitely look up Alan Watts quote box box quote and uh, it'll come up. But it's a it's a good one, and um, I think it just really hits home on the idea of non duality, where two things can be simultaneously true at the same time, and it allows you to take a step back because a lot of times we group, and whenever we group something, we get attached to it. And whenever some, we deem something is important, we build a nest for it. And like we talked about earlier, that leads to attachment, which leads to suffering. That road goes on again. So many things came up when you were talking. First, when we were talking about these ideas of like the social norms, have you ever gone to another country and they live by these like unspoken rules and they seem so stupid, but then you realize how many you are living by that probably seems so stupid to them. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, oh, I didn't bow and you're going to think I'm a bad person. Like big deal. But then it's like, oh, your father said that you couldn't accomplish anything when you were four. And now you're just not doing anything with the rest of your life. Like it's so, so many different things where we don't even realize we're closing ourselves in or that we've created this box of a reality that is completely dictating our behavior or what we think about other people because they just fell out of line of whatever the four walls that we've built around ourselves are. I'm also reminded of the concept of like, you hear it when you're young, like if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? And it's like, the more I learn, the more I'm kind of leaning towards, no, if there's no one there to witness it, then where was the vibe? There was no eardrum to actually affect, like to catch that wave. So it didn't make a sound unless you actually have something to receive the sound. But then even going deeper, it's that um, like the waves and the particles of until there's a, an observer and the observer actually influences what the result of that's going to be and how scientists realize 
even in double blind experiments, they're still influencing the results just because of an idea that they had when they observed it. And so it exists in like, is the cat dead in the box? <laughs> it exists in both forms until you open it up and then you see it's dead. And it's like, okay, now we can mourn the loss. <laughs> now in this reality that I'm observing, it died 12 minutes ago. I should have put a hole in the box so the cat could breathe, <laughs> but now it's gone. If I wouldn't have opened the box, there is a part of it that still could be alive. <laughs> like there's just the reality is so much less fixed than we think it is. And based on that, we have so much more, I don't want to say control because we also have no control. And I feel like accepting that is really helpful, but we have more power to shape our universe than we give ourselves credit for. And we also hold ourselves back so much more than we realize that we do than we accept from ourselves and so we're constantly like looking outside of ourselves to say this is why I can't do this or this is what's holding me back or this is why I'm unhappy when so much of that just starts on the inside and I know I completely pivoted what we were talking about but it was all coming together to this one grand idea <laughs> yeah no that was beautiful that uh, for me it's like most people underestimate the challenge and over they overestimate the challenge and underestimate themselves. And when you have that, you're just large gap. You're never going to start. And then you just need to start. Uh, and then, yeah, you said a lot of great things um, for the uh, the quantum things like that hit on like. So David Griffiths, he's a professor at Reed College, uh, wrote a lot of great textbooks on quantum mechanics. And uh, at the end of one of them, he talks about the idea of like the orthodox viewpoint versus the realist viewpoints, which is exactly what you said, where. You have like an electron floating around the electron cloud of the nucleus, which contains the proton and the neutron. And so before you do the experiment, you have like, all right, there's a 20% chance it's going to be there, 50% chance there, and then 30% chance there. So you don't really know where it's going to be, but you have these guesses. And then you make the measurement. And when you make the measurement, it goes, poof, okay, the electron was around here. And so the big idea is like, okay, did the measurement cause the electron to be there? Or was the electron there beforehand and the measurement was just like, okay, we actually measured it. And that's um, a philosophical debate that I think people are still debating in the quantum world. And then the other thing you said around the free will, for me, the idea of free will is clopin. We simultaneously have it and we don't. So for example, we're made of quarks, which make up protons and then protons and neutrons make up molecules and molecules make up DNA and then DNA make up cells and then cells make us up. And Robert Pullman, who's a geneticist, describes DNA as dumb molecules who blindly follow the, the laws of chemistry. And so if like quarks are dumb molecules that follow the laws of physics and DNA are dumb molecules that follow the laws of chemistry and cells are dumb molecules that follow the laws of biology, are we just dumb humans who follow the laws of whatever <laughs> world and science we live by? Um, so that's kind of like the one viewpoint where it's like, okay, by this idea, we're just, we just have front row seats to the world that we're given. But on the other side, we have this idea of choice points, right? Where it's like, okay, I can make a decision. I can either pick up my AirPod case or I can pick up a pen and I get to choose. And if every single moment in time is a choice point, then by that definition, you have free will uh, from being able to make those decisions. So in my mind, the situation is cloping, right? It's true and false at the same time. We simultaneously have free will and we don't, which is nice because sometimes when I want to relax at the end of the day and watch some Jujutsu Kaisen, which is an anime. I get to do that. Other times when I want to have a conversation with Melissa, I get to be very engaged and focused and spark great conversation, right? So 
That's kind of where my mind went when you brought up those things. I'm becoming more convinced of the, like the multiverse theory where, yes, I'm making these choices, but maybe it's just tuning me into a timeline, the timeline in which I made that choice. Like, sliding doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, she catches the train or she doesn't catch the train and then she's just right there. And I keep bringing up the story, but I think it really affected my view of reality or altered it. Ram Dass tells a story about his guru and he would come and go in contact with his guru. Like he would spend like a year there and then he'd go and then he'd come back and his guru was always kind of disappearing. <laughs> like everyone was trying to hold him down and be like, no, stay here with us. And then he'd just disappear into the woods with a blanket and then come back like six minutes later. Well, he was, Ram Dass had a group of people that he was kind of like touring with. He was the leader and they all wanted to go to this one spot. It's like, oh, we're coming all the way here. We got to go to this one spot. But it was way out of the way. And, and he was trying to decide and was thinking not. And the very last minute was like, okay, yeah, we'll go there. And he goes there and his guru happens to be there with all of his guru's people, the people that take care of the guru to keep him alive so he can just guru. And the <laughs> guru was like, basically was like, I've been expecting you. And he had told the whole staff or whoever's taking care of him to like prepare food for 33 people and told them that three hours before, before Ram Dass ever made the decision to go. And so that got him contemplating, do I have free will? Here I am thinking I made the choice, but I was already expected. He already knew I was coming. How do you even grapple with that? Is our free will an illusion? And we just always think we're making these choices. So maybe the best choice is always just to be more accepting and go with what feels good because all this time we're resisting what's going to be anyways. And that's hard for me to accept because I do think I'm making choices, right? But maybe there was a timeline in which his guru was not expecting him. And there was one in which he was. And the guru can kind of zoom out and see that everything's happening at once. And this didn't actually happen three hours before and whatever it is, because he is not confined by space and time because he's transcended his mind above that, which is what I would love to do, but I really doubt it because Amazon's holding me to this grounded universe. But But yeah, and so which one is it? It's got to be either we don't have free will or we are jumping in different versions of this reality and matching with the one in which we choose, right? Yeah, that got me thinking of like, I would love to go in the universe where the guy predicted 33 and Ram Dass didn't show up. And he's like, rats, I got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, let's go feed the, let's go feed our neighbors. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and then I don't know if you ever watched the movie Donnie Darko, but that's like the one scene where he just gets the kind of like wormhole that like shoots out of his stomach and like leads him where he needs to go. And then he just kind of like follows that wormhole. And like, again, like for me, I think it's like Clovin, like we, we do have it and we don't have it. And it's like, it's weird to accept that we simultaneously have free will and we don't have free will. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's, we're all just trying our best to guess <laughs> what's going on in this weird and wacky world. Uh, Cause it's like, I think a big question that's always valid is kind of like, what is this? 
you know, just kind of what is this? It's it's weird that we're quote unquote alive in this world and it's not necessarily easy every single day and every single waking moment, but it's definitely beautiful, right? I think that's one of the key aspects of our world that's like it's very beautiful no matter where you look you can find beauty there's a good confucius quote uh where he says uh, everything has beauty to it but not everybody can see and so i think that goes back to the attachment thing when you attach to the ego and it's like oh it's not mine or uh, you don't view it as yours or you attach to it in a weird way you're not able to see the true beauty behind it like for example um staring at like a, a connection cord it doesn't look that beautiful but again like i'm a bit of a nerd i like reading about computers and stuff and like when i think about it i'm like this is a feat of engineering someone like a team of people were able to make this and they're so small the things that are happening in there and it's just electrons just whizzing and we're able to connect to it and then i'm able to talk to you from like across the united states and like minimal latency able to hear you perfectly and we're able to have a great conversation and things are just like happening and you're like okay this is what's happening right now and it's just yeah life is life is beautiful all around it is wild i i just feel like whoever invented the camera is not given enough credit like why don't i even know, know his name because it is mind-blowing to me that you can point something at me and capture my likeness exactly or even right now video calling you actually see what I look like. I can look better than this, I promise. But like, I'm <laughs> <laughs> at home. I'm at home. <laughs> Anyways, and it brings back to like the three the free will idea of it. Yes, we think we have free will. And I hope I do. I think maybe I don't. But also, if you are able to immediately see and understand every experience I've ever gone through, would you be able to accurately predict my next move? Probably. Like if you had that awareness and understand, mm. oh, well, this, this, and this happened. Oh, just three days ago, this happened and it turned her off from this. So she's not going to go to this crepe shop and meet this guy. She's going to go over here and meet this person who's going to talk to her about this because of this. And You know, and like, maybe you can just see how the macro fits together. And that kind of reminds me of the illusion of self. You talk about how the concept of non-self suggests that our identity is this amalgamation of thoughts, emotions, sensations, perceptions, and consciousness, which challenges the notion of the fixed self. But how does this idea of non-self differ from our idea spaces? Yeah, it's a great question. So Alan Watts used to say, true self is non-self. And so what is your non-self? Your non-self is the amalgamation of your idea space and your unique perspective of the world around you. So we can do a fun little experiment. So when I see you from this distance, I see Melissa, a person. But when I zoom into you, I see cells. And then if I zoom in more, I see molecules. If I were to take a step back, then you would become your house, then you would become your state, then your country, planet Earth, your solar system, and so on and so forth. But all these sort of fractal layers, you're still Melissa, but you're just a different angle of Melissa. So the big question is like, where do you start and where do you end? And Richard Feynman talks about this and he's a physicist as well, where it's like, what is a chair? Like to describe a chair very precisely, you have to take into account all the atoms and molecules. Some of them are dirt, some of them are paint. So to, chair, to say what a chair is very precisely is impossible. So we deal with idealizations and approximations to better communicate with one another. In the same way, like I, your name is an idealization that we use to talk to each other and approximate who we are because we're always changing from moment to moment. 
And so your non-self is kind of like I talked about earlier, everybody lives at the center of their own observable universe that is kind of like the setting sun. It's hitting you uniquely. The outer edges of your observable universe, the Big Bang is hitting you uniquely. And so your non-self is amalgamation of your idea space, which has zero measure. So it looks like nothing to everybody else. And all the fractal layers of your observable universe. So all your cells, all your molecules, your state, your country, your solar system. And that's unique to you. And that's kind of the idea of your non-self. And so going back to what Alan Watts is saying, true self is non-self, is to say that we're used to seeing the true self is the self. I'm Clement. That is me. That is who I am. But that's just not the true self objectively, right? We just want the zooming in and zooming out experiments that shows us a whole different world exists out there. And so your non-self, which is the true self, is just the idea that all your fractal layers are unique to you. And it's tough because it's, and especially like talking back to the social norms, it's become so ingrained in our minds that I, 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 I is a thing, right? But like, for example, when you have a dog, the dog doesn't know its name until a couple months to a year old, right? Before that, it's just like, I'm loving life. What is this? Tongue out the mouth. Um, and same thing with kids. Kids don't know their names. And it takes time to for kids to develop the idea of, of self, of I. And we just project it onto them. And if we weren't there, they would not have that whole concept. And so, yeah, the whole point of the non-self that is helps detach from I. And like we talked about earlier, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I. And the less you can cling to things. The, the less you're bound to suffer because the things you cling to tend to change. And when they change, you're bound to get hurt. So if you're stuck to the idea of who you were five years ago, or who you're going to be five years from now, you're just going to be upset because it's, it's bound to change. I am reminded, well, first of all, it's wild having kids and really understanding what they understand and don't understand. Like babies don't understand that you are a different person than them. Like they just kind of, mesh themselves with their mom they don't understand that they have any sort of separateness until a couple months of age which is just such an interesting thing when just having babies my husband and i were always watching them like that face is the exact face that you have when you take way too many mushrooms <laughs> like a relative <laughs> i bet this is what he's experiencing right now and then it just gives me this extra compassion i'm like oh i've been there little buddy you just need to be held close like i would cry too <laughs> you know what i mean but it also reminds me of dan siegel his most recent book was about this idea of interconnectedness and he talks about he like goes into the different stages of humans and how our identity or idea of self changes but he also compares it in like different cultures and it's so interesting the way in the west for example there's so much individuality and separateness and even like okay baby's got to sleep in another room as soon as possible which i have mixed feelings about i love and hate at the same time <laughs> like yes i love sleep and i like to cuddle and i don't want you to <laughs> want you to have a healthy attachment neither here nor there but he talks about in some cultures it's so much more family oriented like they they have a, a greater concept of we than we do here in the west and it's just interesting because we grow up and we have our own idea space, our own concept of self and our own concept of our personal universe that's the sun setting right above us and, and whatever. 
But even just across an ocean, the way of life might be slightly different and completely change the way they relate to themselves as somebody else. Another concept that keeps coming up lately is like the Taoist way. Um, or Ram Das talked about how in in China or in like Asian paintings, often it'll be like portrait of a fisherman. And you can barely see the fisherman. It's like a little Where's Waldo there. It's like the whole concept of fisherman. You need the ocean and the fish and the boat and the trees in order for this fisherman to exist. And whereas like here, it'd be just like an up close picture of him may or may not have a fishing pole, you know? And so it's, it's just like so fascinating. Sometimes when I'm getting in my own head about something, I like to just go deep into my mind and think, how else do people experience this? Is there a way to experience this that's less painful or puts less pressure on myself? Or what would happen if I had a really close sibling and then I was experiencing this? Would I just feel less alone like I had someone to call and like share the burden with? Like just so many different tiny little factors that can completely change my experience of a completely isolated situation. But we just don't know until we experiment with it. And then going back to the kind of the power we have, it's like, can I change my perspective on that now without having that direct experience when I was four to alter it from the root? You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. I think it goes back into uh, like the religious aspects as well, where like the religions that evolved in Asia are so different than the ones that evolved over here in like the Western world. Um, but I think for me, the the point of religion is to help build the principles of your idea space, right? Um, they're kind of like the roots that you can always go back to and kind of traverse from one thought to the next. So if you're in a certain scenario, you can say, okay, this is my principle. Let me go to this. And it's kind of just happens subconsciously. Uh, and so like going back to what you're saying, it's like if someone with a whole different kind of upbringing in general is put in the exact same situation where you were, where everything else was the same, but just that sort of like, understanding of their mind kind of how would they react in that situation and i think something that the eastern cultures has gotten i think not right but it's vibes with me more i guess it's just their approach to um non-self and these ideas where i feel like in the western world you don't see that as much it's not it's kind of like laughed at <laughs> in, in a way like if you if like i bring up this scientific theory to people they would just be like Oh, what are you talking about? Um, and like, they'll, they'll deem you a crazy person, but it's like, I'm not crazy. It's like, this has been around for like 3000 years. Like the longer something has been around for, the more likely it will be around for a longer period of time. Um, and so that's always been interesting. And I did have a question for you. So it's like, so your, your baby thinks and you are part of it. Do you also feel like your baby is part of you? And like, kind of how long does that last for then? Okay, first of all, apparently it lasts forever. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, I'm not kidding. That makes like, sense. Like, I know metaphorically, but like, I was reading, a, I think it's in a Happy Pocket Full of Money book, but he talks about, you know, how the, the experience, the experiments they've done where cells are communicating from like across the globe. But it's so quick that they realize they're not communicating. They just know, like they know the state that the other is in without having to send a uh, communication signal because it takes zero time. 
Well, that that connection of cell communication is always in the mother and the baby, apparently. So there's certain things that will always change. Like even here's a wild thing. And this is up close. But did you know that when you're breastfeeding a baby, not you personally, despite (laughs) progressiveness of our society, I still don't believe that you can. But when I am in a room and there's a sickness in the room, my breast milk will identify that it needs to create antibodies and create those antibodies in real time and give them to my baby just by sensing it in the room. How wild is that? Number one. But yeah. So when my child falls, I feel it in my uterus. It is the weirdest thing. It feels like my uterus is dropping out. So either this is a really magical way that the universe works where I need to get this checked because it is wild. I'm like, Oh my God, he just tripped. And I'll like feel this shoot of electrons like in my ovaries. It's so odd. But that is also why there's like this great amount of mother's intuition where you hear of something happening overseas to somebody's child and they know somehow. So there's just this weird real time connection always happening between me and my baby, whether I like it or not. (laughs) Yeah. And that gets me. So like we talked about a little bit earlier, the, the idea space has zero measure, right? So it looks like nothing to everybody else. And one of the other ideas that I don't know if it's hundred percent true or not, but it has, since it has zero measure, it has zero effect on space and time, right? So space and time is kind of like a taut trampoline, nice and flat. But if I put a bowling ball on the trampoline, the bowling, the trampoline will curve and dip. And then if I put marbles around the, the, the bowling ball, they'll gravitate around the trampoline. So kind of like a metaphor for space-time. If I put a star in space-time and then planets around the star, they'll gravitate in the same way, kind of like a trampoline would. But with an idea space, when you place an idea on space and time, it has no effect. So the trampoline stays taut, even if I put an idea on it. And that goes back to like, you saw that mental image in your head, but no one else could see it. It was kind of like a metaphysical thing. And so you get this idea where potentially your idea space sits outside of space and time. And so you're able to make so some of these like instant connections, right? And in the physical world, this is through the concept of entanglement, where let's say that you have something that's called a pos- um, not a positron. It's so you have an electron and anti-electron that are really close together for a very short period of time, and then they'll sort of annihilate. And when they annihilate, they'll create two photons or two pieces of light. The one piece of light is rotating clockwise one way and shooting upward, and the other one is shooting downward. And if you're an observer and you see the kind of one proton that goes up, that's like 20,000 years after it goes up. And then you see that it's rotating upward, you'll know, or clockwise, you'll know that the other one is rotating clockwise just by conservation of momentum, right? And that's like the whole concept of entanglement where two things, communication can be sent instantaneously from like two particles really far away just because of some of the conservation laws that we have um, in the universe. And so like, combining those two things you get some weird and wacky things that can happen in space time and like there's a whole idea of wormholes too it's like bridge bridges between space time and so again going back to what is this it's really weird (laughs) it is and also at a very basic level i remember learning how people with a more expanded vocabulary actually experience a greater range of emotions and it's because they have Mm. a word for it. And so they can see it, feel it, identify with it on a different level. Whereas 
a lot of people with less education, they might default to anger with every single emotion, complex emotion, because melancholy doesn't exist, you know? And when you think of that idea and then apply it to this, these kind of magical laws of the universe where we don't even really realize they exist. We just think in like what we've already observed with our senses and that's it. And so transcending beyond just what we sense and we start to learn what we can understand with greater tools and with genius scientists that have brought us this information. How does this change your idea of what's possible? And then beyond that, if you go to like Ram Dass's guru or the Buddha or Jesus Christ or these people that have then transcended the laws of the universe because they can see and recognize and really understand the power that even goes beyond these laws, then what's possible? Yeah, that is a great question. It's like the unknown unknowns, right? There's these unknown unknowns affect the way that we live our lives more than we will ever know. For instance, like gravity, everything we do is based on gravity. We send ships to the moon based on gravity. We use cars to make life so much easier based on gravity. And so in the same sense, it'd be like in 50 to 100 years from now, what's going to be the next technological advancement that has been here all along, but we just haven't really just looked at it. And I hope it's teleportation. That's my that's my like goal. <laughs> That'd be sweet. Um, just being able to teleport from one because like if you get yeah, teleportation down, that means you days. have time travel down. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like no more plane industry just collapses in a day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's my little goal and wish in life for teleportation to be real by the time I die. I'm gonna put my idea space together with yours. Maybe make it a macro idea space and make it happen faster. <laughs> we'll get there. Well, I love leaving listeners with something either actionable or something specific to think about for the week um, to just ground what we've been learning into their reality. So do you have any technique? You have so many good things in your book, multiple things I wanted to touch on, like the layers of the onion experiment, the stop technique. Which one do you feel would be the most helpful or fun for our listeners to dwell on because they're going to dwell on something. Let's give them something positive. <laughs> yeah, that's a oh man. Like you said, too many to choose from. Um, I'm going to choose it's I'm going to choose two things. I'm going to choose a quote and then a little experiment they can do themselves. So the quote is everybody lives two lives. The second starts when you realize you only live one. And I think that goes to your first life is yourself and then your second life is your not self. So just ego death. Uh, and then the second is an experiment in pure concentration. So I think people have experienced this once in their life, but they haven't really in a while. So basically it's for one minute, it's a very short experiment. You just sit down, you pick an object and you stare at it as intensely as you can. And when you stare at it, you try not to breathe. You breathe, but like very slowly where like your lungs expanding and contracting is how you breathe. And for just one minute, don't let any thoughts come in, any emotions come in, just really one-pointed awareness at this object. And it's a fun little experiment to really show you what being focused is like, and especially in our world where we have phones and we're distracted 24-7, it's a good uh, reminder to come back to the present moment and know that you can use that same awareness on your thoughts, emotions, and other aspects. I love that. It brings me back to this idea of like really 
thinking of our minds as something that we're meant to work out. Like we, we know we do it to our bodies to stay healthy, but then we're just like, Oh yeah, my mind's not fine. I must have a mental disorder. Not saying those don't exist, but like I have related to having ADHD, being too empathic, being all these things. And it's helpful until it's not. What I allow it to do is guide me towards the processes that are going to help this. And we all think we have ADD now because we live in a society that's meant to steal our attention and spends billions of dollars learning how to do that. And so I know that the foods that I eat, the things that I focus on, but even just the practice of focus, that's what meditation is, coming back to a mantra, that can change your life so profoundly because suddenly you can get your goals done. You can listen more deeply in conversations. You can remember things that somebody told you. You can be in the present. All of these things lift you out of depressions, of brain fog, of mind spiraling. So I highly promote this practice of focus. I think that that is probably one of the things that I, I feel the most changes with in my adult life is learning how to focus and to quiet my mind a little bit. And then to use the space that I've created to create the life that I really want. So thank you so much for bringing not only this super fascinating book, but having a deep conversation that I've been yearning for in my little mountain <laughs> town where I can't talk beyond surface level to so many people. And I'm just like, <laughs> sometimes I'll be in like a mom group and like poke them and be like, so I want to talk about quantum entanglement. And they're just like, <laughs> yeah. okay, yeah, back to kid snacks. Yeah, which one doesn't have Red 40 in it? Anyways, where can people <laughs> find you if they're vibing with you as much as I am? Oh, that was beautiful. Um, so yeah, best way to find me is on my website, www.theideaspace.io. There's the first chapter of the book. It's on there for free. So feel free to check it out there. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 331. Your challenge for this week is going to involve a whole lot of self-awareness. I want the challenge to be self-awareness itself. I want you to just notice when you feel limited. Is it something that you don't really believe is possible for yourself? Something that you don't think you can do? Something that you don't think you can be? And just notice where that belief stems from. You don't need to go changing it all right now. Just ask yourself, when was the first time I experienced this belief? Because here's the thing. I recently read an article about how babies basically think they're invincible. And I have a baby and I will say that that tracks. <laughs> I'll just like dive off the couch, trusting that we're going to be there to catch him because we always have. He hasn't yet experienced that failure that we all do as humans, where it's like, eh, maybe we shouldn't do that. Have you ever heard that story of the monkeys? There's a bunch of monkeys in the cage and there's bananas hanging at the top. And all the monkeys, of course, are jumping up to grab those bananas. But every time they grab the bananas, the mad scientist sprays them down with a hose. So before you know it, they stop reaching up for those bananas. And then they'll swap out a monkey. A new monkey comes into the cage. He doesn't know yet. And so he's jumping up to get those bananas. And the mad scientist hoses them all down. And all the other monkeys are like, why'd you do that? We could have just told you, don't grab the bananas. And then they swap out another monkey. And before you know it, none of the monkeys 
have ever tried to grab the bananas. They're just warned by the other ones. And so no one's jumping up to get the prize of those bananas at the top. That's kind of how our lives are. We're not just limited by our own beliefs. We hear the scary stories of everyone around us and we tell ourselves, well, we shouldn't go for that. Well, that doesn't seem very possible. And so I want to go back to that wonder-like, infinite possibilities mindset of a child. And just ask yourself, when did I experience something that created this limiting belief? Was it something I've experienced? Was it something somebody else has experienced? This awareness is one of the most foundational steps to change itself. It's kind of difficult to just be like, meh, I'm not going to believe that anymore. Eventually we get to a place where we can do this. But sometimes drilling back to figure out where something came from allows it to release its power on us. Because we're like, oh, just that one thing that that kid across from me said in third grade affect the way I lived my entire life there on after? Or just Aunt Sandy told me that this wasn't possible, so now that's how I'm going to live my life within that container? I don't want a life like Aunt Sandy. These are the things that we bring awareness to and it blows open our mindsets. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa and tickle that algorithm a little bit, if you will. I would greatly appreciate it. Anyways, all of my amazing sponsors are at mindlove.com sponsors along with all of their incredible discount codes. Do join me on Instagram because I have a lot of exciting things going on there this year. And that will be the first place to find out because there's not the whole waiting period of, oh, editing and all of that that goes into each of these episodes of the podcast. So mind love, Melissa. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with mind love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.